Welcome to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast on a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is Fox in the Hen House, a.k.a. Compliance Officer Goes Rogue. Today's case was chosen not because of the excitement or dazzle of the scheme. There's no grand ending or gory details. Today's case was chosen because of who was involved. Now, regardless of where you work, we're willing to bet that if you're listening to this podcast, your organization has a compliance department. And the role of the compliance department is in the name. They are there to ensure that you're complying with all legal requirements and not opening the organization up to fraud, abuse, or other potential claims. They're there to identify risks that your organization faces and advise it on how to address or avoid those risks. Compliance professionals are not only rule followers, they are in charge of making everyone else in the organization follow the rules as well. And in charge of that department is the chief compliance officer the number one head honcho when it comes to compliance. And if you asked anyone in your organization, who is the one person you would never, ever, ever see committing fraud, we're willing to bet that almost everyone would probably answer the chief compliance officer. The chief compliance officer is the last person you would expect to go rogue, but then we wouldn't have anybody, anything to talk about today, would we, Hala? That is right, Henry. So, as with many of our recent schemes we've discussed, there are a lot of players in this one, many of which we're just going to skim over to focus on the two main players here. The CEO of a company called A1C, James Letko, and then the chief compliance officer of A1C, Stephen King. And no, not that Stephen King. At the center of this criminal conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud and wire fraud was a Florida limited liability company called A1C Holdings. And as its name implies, A1C was a holding company that consisted of seven different subsidiary pharmacies located in seven different states. Now, each pharmacy was a subsidiary of A1C, and each of these pharmacies were either underperforming or a new retail pharmacy that the CEO of A1C would purchase or create. Now, starting sometime in 2013 in their official capacity, the CEO and King submitted credentialing paperwork and entered into pharmacy provider agreements with pharmacy benefit managers like CVS Caremark and Express Scripts for each of the seven subsidiary pharmacies. Now, before we dive any further into this case, you may be asking yourself, what in the world is a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM? If you've never heard of PBMs before, or you've heard of the term and you just never really understood what their role is in pharmaceuticals, it can be really confusing. But I know one man that can help us clear things up. Henry? Thank you, Hala. PBMs are unique. They play a unique role in the retail pharmacy contracting and distribution system in this country. And this indictment included a very nice summary of what a typical PBM does when it stated that PBMs manage prescription drug benefits provided by Medicare through Medicare drug plan sponsors. Now, they play a similar role with commercial payers, but since only Medicare claims were involved in this case, the course focused on the role they play with Medicare drug sponsors. PBMs receive, adjudicate, and pay claims on behalf of federal health care programs, such as Medicare and Medicaid, through the Medicare drug sponsors. In this case, the A1C pharmacies were parties to provider agreements, either directly or indirectly, with one or more of these PBMs that Hala mentioned. 
In this case, after a pharmacy dispensed the prescription drug to a beneficiary, the pharmacy submitted a claim, typically electronically, to the PBM, acting on behalf of a specific health care benefit program. The PBM, on behalf of the health care program, reimbursed the pharmacy, typically electronically, through direct deposits into accounts held and previously identified by the pharmacy. Now, the reference to electronic transfer of funds foreshadows the water tunnel. Haley, you know, it's like Chekhov said, if a gun is introduced in the first act of a play, you can bet your life it's sure to go off by act three. But I digress. CVS, Caremark, and Express Scripts were two of the PBMs that managed prescription drug benefits for Medicare through Medicare drug sponsors that were involved in this case. So, as with most PBMs, the PBMs that the A1C pharmacies contracted with required a signed certification that the information provided in the application materials was true and accurate, including, but not limited to, who maintains ownership and control over a specific pharmacy, and whether the the pharmacy provided services as a retail or mail order business. So, in the paperwork that was submitted to the PBMs on behalf of the A1C 7A1C pharmacies, the CEO and King concealed the fact that the CEO actually owned or had economic controlling interest in the A1C pharmacies, and they accomplished this fraud by installing nominee owners of the A1C pharmacies, which are a person or a firm whose name is titled on securities or other property to facilitate certain transactions or, or transfers, but it leaves the original customer as the actual or legal owner of the company. And why did they do this? to deceive the PBMs into paying for prescriptions and agreeing to contracts with the individual A1C pharmacies that the PBMs would have otherwise denied had they known that the individual pharmacies were in fact owned or controlled by the CEO. So for example, one of the A1C pharmacies was Hutchkins Pharmacy in Virginia, and an A1C employee was named the nominee owner of Hutchkins Pharmacy. So on all the paperwork to the PBMs, it looked like they owned it. But when in fact the CEO who owns Hodgkins. Now that's something you would think that the compliance officer would be aware of and make sure that didn't happen, right? Henry, that fits directly into the job description. And in addition to that, CEO and King also made material misrepresentations on the applications submitted to the PBMs by registering the A1C pharmacies as retail pharmacies, meaning they were brick-and-mortar locations that you could walk into and pick up prescriptions, like a Walgreens or a CVS. However, all of this A1C pharmacies functioned as mail-order pharmacies. And why did they lie about this? Again, money. See, the PBMs would pay for prescriptions filled at retail pharmacies that they would have denied if the PBM knew that the prescription was being filled by a mail-order pharmacy because the PBMs would not have agreed to contract with the A1C pharmacies under a mail-order contract. Again, something you would think the compliance officer would be all over and make sure that the hospital wasn't doing. But again, didn't happen here. So in the initial setup of the agreements with the PBMs, that was already enough to get these guys some time in the slammer. But of course, they didn't stop there. On top of those misrepresentations, the CEO and King, the chief compliance officer, and other A1C employees submitted and caused the submission of false and fraudulent test claims via interstate wires. Again, anytime you hear the word wire, think of Chekhov's gun, using physicians, Medicare, national provider numbers, or NPIs, to determine patient eligibility for expensive prescription medications and diabetic testing supplies without the physician's consent. 
They also submitted false and fraudulent claims via interstate wires to Medicare and Medicare drug sponsors using Medicare beneficiary information to determine patient eligibility for expensive prescription medication, again, without the Medicare beneficiary's consent. Then to add insult to injury, they did the same for refills of electron, of medically unnecessary prescription drugs and diabetic testing supplies that were shipped, you guessed it, without the patient's consent. And in addition to being unscrupulous, they apparently were not very careful with selecting these beneficiaries because a number of the claims they submitted were actually for beneficiaries who had died. And it's kind of difficult to get the patient's consent from the deceased. These guys deserve to go to jail for being both audacious and stupid. I definitely don't disagree, Henry. And I also wanted to point out that over the course of this entire conspiracy, various PBMs terminated their contracts with some of the A1C pharmacies at varying times. Not because they had knowledge of the scheme, but because the pharmacies were violating other terms of the contracts. Although we're unsure what terms they were allegedly violating. But like a game of corporate whack-a-mole, whenever a PBM would terminate a contract, A1C would simply redirect the prescriptions, again, without patient consent, to another A1C pharmacy so they could still bill the prescriptions to PBMs. And each time the A1C secured prescriptions and refills on behalf of its pharmacies for medically unnecessary lidocaine and diabetic testing supplies, it violated Medicare and pharmacy benefit manager rules. And then, of course, in order to get the Medicare beneficiaries to accept refills of expensive medications and diabetic testing supplies without consent, the A1C pharmacies wouldn't collect copays from the beneficiaries, which is another type of fraud. Now, King and his co-conspirators took the, each of these steps to ensure Medicare continued to be billed for profitable medications and supplies. And what is a real shame here is that notwithstanding the many and varied types of fraud they committed, they were able to either submit or cause the submission of over $80 million of false and fraudulent claims to Medicare and Medicare drug plan sponsors via interstate wires. Now, as a chief compliance officer, King was in a unique position to prevent and report the fraudulent scheme. But instead, he used his position as chief compliance officer of A1C to defraud Medicare. We try to make the point with every podcast that all reimbursement systems, but especially the Medicare and the Medicaid reimbursement programs, are built on trust. Specifically, the trust that those submitting their claims will do their best to only submit accurate claims for medically unnecessary services. And as we have seen over and over again, woe be to he or she who abuses that trust. And again, as Hala said, they abuse it to the tune of $80 million, which is quite an abuse. And because of that abuse, a few weeks ago, a jury convicted King of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and wire fraud. His sentencing is scheduled for September 14th, and he's facing a maximum of 20 years in prison. I think this will be a really interesting one to see whether the judge throws the book at him because King was the chief compliance officer of A1C. He should have been more acutely aware of his crimes being committed at that company than anyone else, and he certainly should not have been in the middle of this mess. If you want to learn more about compliance with the False Claims Act and the kickback statute, the Stark Law, the amendments to these regulations, and much, much more, consider joining Dan Mulholland, myself, and our newest faculty member, Hela, <laughs> in Phoenix, November 16th to 18th, 
for our next seminar. In the interim, be sure to check out the Horty Springer website to find out how to receive our free weekly newsletter, The Health Law Express, as well as for more information about new and upcoming opportunities on this and many other health law related subjects. Thanks for listening and tune into the next edition of the Kickback Chronicles so you can keep learning from the misfortune of others.